0: Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is unrelated thoughts on being an unruly adoptee. Welcome back to the next episode in this series that I have been doing. My name is Wes Unruh. I was born in 1974 in Twin Falls, Idaho, in the Magic Valley. For this episode, it wouldn't hurt for you to have seen Warlock 3, The End of the Innocence, of the 1999 film. But you probably have not seen this film. I don't think most people have seen this film. <clears throat> it was an outlier to a franchise that had marginal popularity in the 1980s, 1990s, and to be clear it was direct to video. It neither fits with the previous films from the Warlock franchise, nor is it particularly remarkable as a standalone horror film. Uh, It is, one might say, a deep cut. Unless you were looking for it, you likely have not seen this film. Yet, as an adoptee film, Warlock 3 does some remarkable things. So, strap in. (laughs) <laughs> While it remains relatively obscure, I'm going to ask you to hear me out as I dig through this film. Its lack of popularity means that the film did not have a deep effect on society, and it's not, well, not why we're reviewing it. At the same time, though, it seems to be almost like an accidental birth. It, it is horror, based around the journey of the adoptee in their search for truth. In turn, the 1999 film turns the fear of the searcher into a cathartic experience, a meat grinder of a nightmare that succeeds in banishing the demonic, malign possibilities that are in attendance during the adoptee's search for significance. Um, It is fair to say that this is not a good movie. It was released direct-to-video and occasionally airing on HBO and elsewhere over the years. But um, as an adoptee, I find the film jarring in many ways. I first encountered the film while working at a video store in my 20s. I brought it home, expecting to find the typical 1990s horror fare I'd seen the previous two films. But... um, What I discovered in the film was deeper, more subversive. It almost felt like someone made this film as an adoptee confessional. It appears almost as though it either was meant to scare adoptees from looking for their heritage, like flirting with disaster, the 1996 film feels like it was, or embodies the abject fears of an adoptee afraid of looking, um, sort of like a response to The Truman Show. I'm not sure if either of these things is true and I've resisted any urge to delve too deeply into authorial intentionality. I've talked about this film with a lot of people. Um, I talked about this film with Mike Manello, the guy who marketed the Blair witch I've talked about this film for hours or it felt like hours with him, honestly. Um, and, and Mark McKinnon was part of that conversation, oddly enough. Um, Talking about the, about how adoptees are represented in horror films, um, I'm not sure if either of these things is true. Like, I'm not sure how this film was written, or who wrote this, or produced this, or why they did it. And I'd rather take the film at face value because it is an adoptee horror film. So I read it at its text. It plays on particular fears best known by an adopted child and actualizes them, turning metaphors into demons. Uh, As I've said, it does not resemble the previous films in the Warlock franchise. The first Warlock film was in 1989, about a 17th century witch hunter and warlock uh, thrown into the present, now past, of the 1980s, where a young woman must defeat the anachronistic villain. Its sequel, Warlock, the Armageddon, which emerged in 1993, uh, the same warlock in both original films played by Julian Sands attempts to free the devil from hell. So this third film has nothing to do with either of the first two films. Weirdly echoes more Bride of the Adam or Bride of the Monster, the, the, the film from like the, the thirties that was made by, uh, uh, that, the, This third film, is uh, its standalone story, deals with this entirely new warlock, an entirely new cast, and he has an entirely new purpose. Because this film bears little resemblance to its predecessors, one often finds oneself, if they're pondering it at all, how it ended up as a part of this larger franchise. As the name of the films imply, the warlock is both an outcast from the positive feminist paganism, which is portrayed throughout the franchise in different, often problematic, forms. And the same is true with this third film. It stars Ashley Lawrence, primarily known for her role throughout the first four films of the Hellraiser franchise. Uh, She is the central focus of the film as Chris, a late discovery adoptee who we learn in the first act had been told of her adoption by her adoptive mother as the woman lay dying. Well before a young adult version of Chris appears on screen, we begin with the scene set in 1673 in the forests of New England. Here we meet a child named Chris. We are later meant to assume this is the same person as our subsequent main character. Running through the forest, child Chris is protected by her witch mother. They are harassed by a man who seems, at first glance, a Puritan, who is intent on taking child Chris from her mother. As with previous films in the Warlock franchise, the villain is a practitioner of a particularly colonialist imagined satanic witchcraft, moralizing in tone and actively misogynistic in his triggers and punishments. What the third film lacks is the continuation of the titular character played by Julian Sands in Warlocks 2 and 3, the 1989 and 1993 films. The Warlock 3 1999 Warlock, Philip Covington, is played by Bruce Payne. Uh, the motivations of the two warlocks are similar, both seek to unmake or destroy creation, breaking the world. As with other adoptee films, the danger of world breaking power is on the table, narratively speaking. What we later learned through the slow moving exposition is that in 1673, Philip Covington was pursuing a child named Chris who had been born with the call and whose birth mother was a witch for a ritual to bring hell to earth. In doing so, he'd convinced the townsfolk to turn on the mother and her daughter, in effect, giving Chris to Covington to do with as he saw fit. This manipulation of a social's opi- society's opinion of a given individual, or a child, seems really important. Like it, it, it is really built up dramatically. All of this is revealed over the course of the film, but the setup begins with Chris disappearing, leaving only a doll in her place. We're assuming her biological mother appears glad to see her daughter sent forward in time, foiling Cummington's ritual. Much of this exposition is never quite explicitly stated. It is the product of awkward dialogue and Occam's razor, wherein no other possible story is, exists other than what I've just sort of stated above. Uh, as you put together what you see on the screen before you. Now, years later, we meet a young adult, Chris, oblivious of her heritage. She learns that a local historian, so so she is told, of a nearby town with whom she's been in contact regarding a real biological family, has a property that she may inspect and papers he'd like to share. All she need do is meet him there at the property, and perhaps she'll learn more about her past. So Chris pulls her roommates and boyfriend into her drama, revealing her late discovery adoptee story by saying, verbally, a couple of years ago when my mom died, I found out I was adopted. Michael, her boyfriend, explains to the roommates that she had never been told she was adopted. Chris responds, the problem was no one from my biological family was left. There was like no one to ask the questions you need answered, like why they gave you up, little things like that. And so, Um, In the inciting event, Chris decides to embark on a ritual journey of sorts. She's going to go learn her heritage. The danger of the search is immediately called out. Uh, One friend, Scott, who will later be tortured by Covington, says, You may not like what you find, referencing the famous line from the film The Planet of the Apes. The friends and roommates initially refuse to accompany her, and Chris ventures to the house alone. The threat to the despair of uncovering buried history is intentional. This is a film which begins in 1673, anchored in the morals and sort of austere aesthetics of that imagined era. Um, More recently, that era was dramatized in the film, The Witch, uh, the 2016 film, I believe. Another movie that I discussed with Manello at the time we were talking over this. But that austere aesthetics of that imagined era are replete in how this film is first framed so we're also given the sense that that calvinist um christianity is also part of the context of this film subtext um anyway en route to the house chris encounters villagers who warn her away they tell her to leave the house chris arrives at is empty of all trace of that which could be considered like familial there's no portraits on the walls or decorative elements. What is there is deliberate, just utilitarian. There's a tool chest, a working kitchen, empty bookshelves. Um, We come into this as viewers alongside Chris through the space as a storm off-screen threatens in the audio, so as audio cues. That storm, of course, is um, going to push everyone together. Once Chris arrives at the abandoned house, uh, due to be torn down, apparently, we learn. And she's determined to find something that will tell her more about her origin. So she struggles with the reality of a barren structure. There's a bed, a mirror, and a working kitchen still somehow hook up to power or gas. So Chris attempts to sleep, deciding, we assume, to look more when she wakes. But the off-screen, the off-screen storm and what seem to be ghostly supernatural moments pry her out of her room and into the hallway, where ultimately she becomes convinced that a force is threatening her. So she flees this paranoia. She flees the second floor and opens the front door, like clearly planning to barge out of the house, and her roommates pile into the scene, explaining that they've been banging for entry for some time. Her friends talk chris out of her panic and they all agree to spend the night together eat breakfast search the house during daylight and decide what to do from there the lack of water in the house provides um, one character jerry with a purpose of sorts so he attempts to fix the pipes and somehow opens up a passage through which covington the warlock escapes from where he'd been sealed centuries earlier Jerry sees the apparition, leave the pipe, and attributes it to the joint he'd been smoking. Uh, Somehow this does indeed fix the pipes, or at least the lack of water is never again addressed. Um, The next morning there's a large breakfast, which takes up most of the morning, as they very soon begin to prepare for lunch when two visitors in quick succession enter this house. Uh, The town historian we've been promised earlier in Act 1 arrives, bearing letters from Chris's ancestors which he very much would like to share with her, and Philip Covington, the warlock, posing as a traveling architect who would like to look around at the house. So uh, the character Michael um, immediately invites them both to stay for lunch or perhaps join them for breakfast, and Lisa, Scott, and Jerry take the new visitors in stride. Another character, Robin, being a witch herself, senses immediately that something is strange, but her concerns come too late to save her, ultimately. Covington first corners and kills the historian, then destroys the documents meant for Chris, illuminating the papers she'd hoped to recover. Remember, this is a horror film and and a pretty Uh, aggressively brutal one at that. Um, He then hides the body, although we never see the actual labor of moving the body, and when questioned, informs the rest of the housemates that the historian had left rather suddenly. Uh, From then on, Covington begins to question each of Chris's friends about their relationship with her, seeking to determine, obviously, how best to manipulate each of them over the course of the day and into the evening. Covington starts by using his powers on the character Jerry, perhaps because Jerry was the person who freed him, and uses Jerry to remove a lock of Robin's hair and steal her talismanic necklace, a ward that protected her from his own magic. He then confronts the character Robin, who had already suspected he was evil, or he's using magic at least, and the two of them have literally a magical fight, a magic duel. He wins, killing Robin by turning her to stone or perhaps freezing her and then shattering her. Um, Chris's five surviving friends are then turned against her, one by one, at Covington's magically infused manipulation. We learn through flashbacks that this had happened long before with young Chris when we watch this play out on screen. Um, The violence is themed to their assumed moral Or Calvinistic moral uh, interpretations of ethics. Um, So, as the BDSM couple, Lisa and Scott, are tortured with fire and leather straps in moments reminiscent of the Hellraiser, the 1998 film franchise. While Michael rapidly decays into his father, um, Jerry, the musician, suffers hearing loss and painful tinnitus, uh, turning on Chris when Covington shows him Chris's harsh dismissal of Jerry from earlier in the film. Now Chris flees, but Covington's magic has sort of overwhelmed the reality of the space. He's able to warp time, looping Chris in the same space and preventing her from leaving the property. At this point, Michael, Jerry, Scott, and Lisa are dead, killed by Covington, as he cruelly blames Chris for their deaths. So at this point, he's turned everyone in her life against her and then destroyed her. I've always seen Philip Cummington the Warlock as uh, an incarnation of the adoption industry, of the essence of the adoption. Uh, The sort of damage that is done to the adoptee is these relationships are created and then falsified and then evaporated and ultimately estranged in, in an adoptee's life. So this film then careens towards its credit roll, right? Chris confronts Covington directly at this point, seeking to overcome him with physical force. She wrests his sacrificial knife from him and stabs at his heart, but a magical barrier prevents her from a killing blow, and he starts laughing at her, revealing his true power and claims he will replace her very consciousness with the demonic consort he's going to bring out of hell. And then he's going to use her body to sire a race of new human demon half-breeds that will slowly, over time, I assume, outspawn normal humans and thus end the world. Given the shockingly immediate apocalypses of the previous two of Warlock films, threats, this sort of slow burn of an apocalypse is kind of an odd twist at the end. But if we are thinking of personal apocalypses, this agenda of Covington's does indeed rend the veil of reality from Chris directly. Scanners, 1981, ends with the late discovery adoptee having transplanted his consciousness into the body of his biological brother. In Warlock III, the 1999 film, it ends with the adoptee reaching through time and into her own memory, finding the doll that her ancestor left behind when she first imprisoned the warlock in 1673, And she then reaches into the doll to reveal a knife of her own, a weapon of her witch ancestry. I guess we are given to learn that she drives home in the heart of Cummington through the magical barrier, and then finally, alive and successful, she leaves, having overcome the loops of time that previously kept her bound to the house's barriers. Uh, In a few final frames, we are shown the tarot card Strength, along with Robin's Book of Magic, with which Chris is now leaving. She's claimed this book for her own. Um, uh, Perhaps the most curious aspect, watching this film in context with the previous two films in mind, is how small in scope Philip Covington's agenda ultimately is, and how intimately it concerns Chris. So he's waited, trapped at least, like uh, behind the walls, like in some Edgar Allan Poe story, he's waited well over 200 years for her to inadvertently awaken him from where he'd been imprisoned, trapped within a ward of some sort, within which the house she was ultimately bequeathed. Um, I feel it is a mistake to look at this film as anything other than a psychodrama of the adoptee's need to search. I mentioned... Flirting with Disaster, the 1996 film previously. Which, in some ways, is more of a horror story about an adoptee search than this literal horror story. Even so, in this film, Philip Covington, the warlock, um, literally wants to falsify the identity of Chris, to replace her soul. He wants to hollow her out and use her, as he says, to breed a race of counterfeit humans. Uh, her friends, particularly the two given to psychosexual sadistic role play, they're the ones who warn her away from healing. Chris's world is sort of filled with toxic, overbearing men, and it is only Robin, her friend who is a practicing witch, who represents a true threat to Covington's plans. Chris's path is not to defeat Covington, ultimately, but to connect to her long dead birth mother's spirit. These connections are shown to her as flashes. They're like images of a doll in particular. The doll we saw as a stand-in for young Chris at the beginning, some 200-odd years in the past or so. Somehow, Chris's mother knew her daughter would never be free from the power of this warlock until she overcame him herself. And somehow, after all of Chris's friends have been turned against her or killed, Chris is still able to find the doll, turn it into a weapon of her own, and defeat the clearly demonic Covington on her own terms. Chris went to the house to find her own ancestry, and in doing so came face to face with the industry in the form of Covington that attempted to unmake her, personalized as a dark demonic force. Her friends, well meaning in the best of cases, still couldn't fully see the struggle Chris was engaged with until it was too late. They didn't heed the warnings or take the rules seriously enough. For Chris, and for the adoptee viewer, these warnings are clear markers that we as an audience have left in the normal world and are in the in-between world of the unborn, the acquired, the nameless one, the bornless one. Chris senses it even before she sees it, before Covington is unleashed when she prepares for bed earlier in the film. Uh, Chris is seen literally haunting herself with her own memory of who she could have been. There's a full-length mirror that reflects back to her another self, an improper self, um, a feral self almost. But Chris has already looked away before she sees a reflection perform this feral spectacle. Perhaps we're seeing the demonic self that Covington plans to summon. Uh, Perhaps it is Chris dead and haunting the house from the future. Uh, perhaps is meant to indicate that Chris is already asleep, or at least asleep to her own inner desires. Maybe she was looking in the mirror in a hypnotic trance. For as we've seen, she is unable to connect to the carefree lives of her peers and boyfriend. Even Cummington intimates that Chris may have died long ago and been reborn for this very confrontational moment in his final words with her. So she's haunted both by her birth mother and by her other unlived self. She is bornless as all adoptees are, in that, as an adoptee, her birth story remained ungiven. Yet she was also nearly seven in the flashback sequences, if not older, so she should have retained at least a semblance of memories from that distant time as a child. Well, to say that Warlock III, The End of Innocence, the 1999 film, is a bad film is unfair, particularly for a film that was released directly to video. It was not a film I would watch with my families biological or otherwise. I saw it before it first hit the video store shelves, as I had a screener sent to the stores in advance of the purchase request, which was a perk of working as an assistant manager being that I got first pick of the screening VHS and DVDs in the year it was released. The first night I watched this film, I did not expect to be sobbing once it had finished. Um, A bad film would be unlikely to bring its audience or more more or less, to catharsis. Uh, Since that night, I've watched this film many, many times, and it always elicits some emotional response. I no longer find myself in tears, Uh, but I'm always satisfied seeing an empowered, strengthened Chris leave behind the ancestral house freed from the loop of frozen time that had kept her trapped. So is this film meant to jar adoptees who view it into searching for their own history? It certainly had that effect on me. Somehow it seemed this is the worst possible thing adoptee could discover, and she was able to overcome it. She found out that her real bloodline meant she was to be sacrificed, emptied into a demonic shell to be used by the forces of evil to bring about the end of humanity. The film ends as she has outwitted the forces of darkness and reclaimed her own future. If Chris has been hunted, if she has been haunted... She is no longer, and she carries with her Robin's tools, claiming her heritage as a witch by birthright and bloodline. She's integrated the knowledge of her ancestry and overcome the demons in her family's past. It is this moment of integration that remains with me when I reflect back on this film. It's a cathartic final expression of what an adoptee hopes to achieve when they set out in search. (sighs) They... Seek the fullest possible expression of the strength within themselves. I realize that this is a shorter episode than most. I think maybe it's good to leave it at just a meditation on the film Warlock 3. I hope that you go out and watch it. I think that you should watch it thinking about what I've talked about in this. Watch it as a standalone. Don't watch Warlock 2 or 1 before you watch Warlock 3. And watch it knowing that you're going to be watching a bad horror film. But maybe alongside that bad horror film, there's a good adoptee film. My name is uh, Jeffrey Wessonru. I was born in 1974, on April 15th in Twin Falls at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center a little bit before 1 p.m. And uh, Uh, before the sun set that night, I was already with my adoptive family, I've been sort of putting the puzzle pieces of what that means together ever since. Thanks for riding along. I hope you've enjoyed this moment.